Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Preston Pish, investor, podcaster, and Bitcoiner. We talk about investing, how he got into podcasting, and the various instruments available for investing. Preston also tells us about the role of Bitcoin, the possible ways in which we might see hyper-Bitcoinization, and the current horrific macro environment. Welcome to a new season of Bitcoin Fixes This. I really enjoy talking to Preston because he's really well-versed in investing and what's going on in the world from a monetary standpoint. What stood out for me in this interview is just how much of the economy has been proverbially kicked down the road. I couldn't have asked for a better guess for these crazy times. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Preston Pish, how's everything going? Doing great. Thank you so much for the invite. Yeah. I mean, where are you in the world right now and how are things wherever you are? Doing good. I'm down in the South and, you know, it's it's a little chilly right now, but for the most part, we we don't get the winter like we used to. I used to live up North and man, I don't miss the, the winters at all. And so it's, it's not too bad. The COVID stuff is, you know, a little depressing, not do, being able to do all the things we used to be able to do, but we're doing well because we got Bitcoin. <laughs> Indeed, we are. So not not too many restrictions wherever you are. I mean, it's very different, obviously, in San Francisco and New York. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about your background. Can you just sort of tell our audience what background you have and you know what you've been doing and you know basically before Bitcoin and you know how Bitcoin has changed things since you got into it? So my background is actually in engineering and mechanical engineering with a specialization in aerospace engineering. And, you know, I went to a military academy. And so I had to serve in the, in the military afterwards. And so I went into aviation after I had graduated and just kind of had a love for math. And so while I was in the military flying, investing really kind of became my outlet because it was something that I could do that was mathematical I really clung to this Warren Buffett style of investing. And, you know, how many years was I was probably in for 10 years when I started the podcast. Maybe actually, I don't know the the timeline real well. (laughs) Let's let's just say it was around 10 years. I started writing books. I started posting online content in reference to investing and it was more just me educating myself and and putting content out there and educating other people on what i was learning and then it just kind of grew into this investing podcast and you know the rest is history and i've been in that space for the podcasting i think we're at like 8 years or something now and the youtube channel is maybe even older than that but yeah so that's that's how i got to here and then Bitcoin obviously showed up about halfway through the time I was doing the investing sh- podcast show, and you know then it was then it was game on because then it really started to click from a macro sense because most of my focus was on the value investing side, which is much more micro, where you're just looking at individual companies coming up with what you think the valuations of them are, and then if you think the the market's mispricing them, you buy them, and so. What was getting really to be kind of a hard thing for me to understand was it didn't seem like the value investing was working like it had throughout Buffett's entire career and all these other really famous value investors. It seemed like 
there was something kind of breaking down in the in just the process and the functionality and the performance of value investing. And so that really kind of led me to macro. I did a real deep dive on Ray Dalio and some other things that really were kind of the impetus for me coming into the Bitcoin space because I started to see that this was really kind of a currency thing that was driving disparity of performance that seemed like it was not normal. And so then the you know, obviously when you, when you start diving into the currency being an issue, you kind of arrive at, at Bitcoin if you're, if you're asking the right questions, at least in my humble opinion. Mm. Okay. So lots to cover there, but you said you s- sort of started with Warren Buffett and that sort of value investing style. Can you tell our audience what that's all about and what it is that you look for as an investor in that sort of, you know, style of investing? What is it that you are looking out for and how do you know when to put in money? So the thing that you're looking for with value investing is you're looking for something that's kicking off free cash flows. So the example I like to use when I'm explaining this to people is a money machine. So if you were going to buy a money machine, and let's just say that the the money that it's kicking off is legal tender and you can actually, you know, use it in the marketplace. If you were going to value a money machine and you ask somebody, "Well, what would you pay for that?" The typical response that you get from people is, well, I'd pay anything for that, right? Hmm. But if the money machine is only kicking off $100 a year, and that's all the more it can print, it can't print any faster than $100 a year. Now, all of a sudden, it's, it stops being, well, I'll pay anything. And maybe I might pay you know, 100 bucks for something that, that kicks off $10 on an annual basis. Is that the number? I, I'm sorry. I'm, I forget the number. <laughs> I, did, I, did I say $10, $10 a year or $100 a year? Hundred dollars a said, year, okay, but you I, know, I said you know, one year is not that bad, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so if, if you're if you're, <laughs> I forget I forget the numbers I'm even throwing out there. If it's kicking off a hundred dollars a year, you might be willing to pay a thousand dollars for something like that because that gives you a ten percent return on your money on, on an annualized basis, right? So when you're thinking of things in terms of free cash flows, and you're thinking of of well, what would I be willing to pay for that, and then how long would it take for me to recuperate the principal on it? And then it's just pure, you call it in the gravy money, right? Where it's just kicking off money and, you're, and you're, everything's profit at that point. That's how you start to think about invest, investments. And when you think about a business and you're buying Apple stock, you, you treat one share of, a, of the company the same way that you would treat every single owning every single share of the business. So if one share of Apple, and I'm just going to use generic numbers, right? If one share of Apple costs $100 in the open market to buy that one share, and it's kicking off $10 of earnings or free cash flows on an annualized basis, that's pretty much the exact same scenario I just described with the money machine. So your expectation is that you're making a 10% return by buying it at that price. Now, if I would step into the market and buy it for $50, $50 instead of 100 well, now my, re- my expected return literally just doubled. And so this is value investing. This is how Warren Buffett looks at any company that he buys, stock in any company, or if he's buying it from an operationally owned fully owned subsidiary. He's looking at it the same way that he's looking at buying one share of a stock in company XYZ. And indeed, that would be an excellent way to do it if we were in the 70s, which is when Warren Buffett started and part of the 80s. But obviously, that model doesn't work anymore. Can you explain why? Yeah. So this is what value investors, in my humble opinion, do not talk about today. And that's that value investing operates off of a fundamental assumption that no one ever talks about. 
And the, and the fundamental assumption is that you're dealing with a stable currency and that you're dealing with a unit that is being measured. So going back to the example with the money machine, I was throwing out numbers like $100 a year is what it kicks off. But what if that $100 and all the other money that, you, that we're using is getting debased in that same process and it's getting debased in a major way? So you know, Lynn Alden, some others throw out that they like to use M2. I'm in complete agreement with that as being the real measurement of inflation. How it actually inserts itself into the global economy is anything but normalized and uniformly distributed. I mean, it's just, it is not. It's, it's being put in in all these different locations. So to measure inflation based off a of CPI, or if people want to get into this discussion of asset inflation, like you're going to come up with all these different numbers. So it's so much easier just to say, how much is the base money? Let's just use M2 as our measurement for base money. How much is that being debased on an annualized basis? You know, people will throw out different numbers. I think 15 to anywhere to 20% is probably a great number to use right now. And the way that you would figure that out is you just look at the M2 over the last 10 years, do a compound annual growth rate, a CAGR over that 10-year period, and you're going to come up with about 15% debasement on an annualized basis. So if we're using that example of the money machine and we're talking about valuations, but the numbers that we're using are, think of them like a ruler, right? If that ruler is getting longer or shorter, your ability to analyze what you think the measurement is of the value, you just can't do it. And so you know, five years ago, back in 2015, whenever I really started digging into Bitcoin for the first time, I arrived there because my opinion was the ruler that we're using to measure things is totally broke. And if this technology can step in and provide a ruler that cannot move like Alice in Wonderland, like it's, it's getting warped, right? If, if we have a ruler that's not getting warped and it's just a sound instrument, a precision instrument for measuring things, well, now everything changes. And so it was a really exciting dis- discovery for me early on because it gave me hope that this thing that I really have a passion for, which is value investing, will eventually have a lot of utility moving forward. But I mean, there's just so much more, in my opinion, there's so much more upside for Bitcoin before we ever get to that point where we can start doing that with measuring equities again, that it's kind of a laughable discussion today. But who knows where we'll be in five years from now? Yeah, and you hinted at this. It's a laughable discussion today because nobody values things on sort of cash flow basis anymore. I mean, you look at a stock like Tesla, you know, they're not even profitable and they're they're getting some insane valuation and stuff. It seems like there's like a store of value premium on uh, all of these assets that sort of dwarfs anything that that this money printing machine will churn out. So to use your analogy, the money printing machine is trading at $100 right now and it prints out 10 bucks a year, but you know, it suddenly goes up 50%. Now it's $150 and you have to recalculate everything and that $50 going up is way more than the 10 bucks that you would get just uh, just out of that. So like what's happened here? Why has have things changed from sort of like a Warren Buffett value investing style towards a much more, I guess, you know, asset, you know, hold any asset other than the dollar kind of style that we're seeing today? So the best way I can describe this really focuses in on an idea of incentive structures that get built 
around an inflationary monetary policy. So let me try to explain this in a way that's just really easy for everybody to kind of understand the what I'm what I'm getting at here. If we were playing a game of Monopoly and there was four people on the board playing, and let's just say we had a fifth person that was the banker, right? Mm-hmm. And that banker is debasing the money. And they're doing it after every single turn. They're adding more cash flow in, into the board game, right? And they're doing it in a manner... Well, we'll first just use the example of how it was inserted over the last 10 years with QE was, was the primary way that all the money was being inserted, right? So if you have assets on the board, like you own Park Place, you own a lot of assets. I only own a, a few assets on the board. The way that the Fed was inserting the money was they were saying, hey, Jimmy, you own Park Place. We know you bought it for $400, but we're willing to pay $1,200 for that. <laughs> and here's the cash. You just, you're like, well, okay, I'll take that deal, right? So you take the cash, the asset gets clawed off the board, and then we play some more, and then it happens again, right? What happens when that scenario that I'm describing plays out is you're getting flush with cash because you're sitting on, on all these assets, right? And as you get more cash, the remaining assets that continue to sit on the, on the board continue to get bid because you don't want to sit on the cash flow. You don't need the cash flow. So you're going to the other players and saying, hey, I know you paid 200 for that property. I'll pay you 600 for it. And so then you start gobbling up whatever assets remain, right? And so what I'm getting at with this is there's an incentive structure that all the participants on the board start diving into when the banker is manipulating the base money supply. What that incentive structure is, is I've got to get whatever cash flow I'm receiving from the bidding of all these assets, and I've got to buy whatever remains and whatever's left and whatever's the most valuable, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is that was playing out in real time. And where all the money was flowing to, all this freshly inserted QE money, it gets dropped into the fixed income market, but then it eventually makes its way into the equity market. And you're seeing all these people that are getting first dibs at this. And we're obviously talking about the continuing effect. The people that are getting first dibs at this are chasing technology. Anything that they think has enormous upside is getting bid. And they're trying to just gobble up whatever's left is in terms of assets. And so this is where everything turned into a giant momentum play. If you were some boring company that has the same top line, has the same bottom line, you're profitable, but the margins are you know, somewhat pathetic relative to these growth companies that have yet another billion users and subscribers that are signing up for their service. Those are, that's where all the money was flowing into simply out of an incentive structure of, you know, I'm rich, I'm getting richer and I'm going to start chasing further risk and in, in driving it up. Now, if you think about the opposite dynamic that would play out with that monopoly example, let's say the banker wasn't debasing the money, but they were making it stronger. Like mm. after a couple turns, they would step in and be like, if you had, they're like, hey, everybody give me 20 bucks, right? <laughs> collect <they> start, taxes. <laughs> well, yeah, they collect taxes, <laughs> but they're not putting, they're not allowing that money to go back into circulation. They're, they're clawing it off the board and it's getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And when you think about what happens there, it's the yin and the yang of what I just described. Mm. And what, what's so fascinating when we think about Bitcoin is I'm real curious, and I don't know for sure that the incentive st- structure is going to in- invert itself, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's actually going to start slowing down capital investment and that it's going to, and it's not going to do this abruptly. So please don't 
you know, people listening to this don't think that it's going to be this flipping event. I think what it's going to do is it's just going to start slowing down some of the, these aspects. And when you think about a world where you start going into a hyper Bitcoinization type scenario, the thing that's going to become super important is free cash flows. Hmm. Because if you're not a business that's kicking off free cash flows and have some type of enduring competitive advantage in the marketplace, you're really going to struggle to stack Bitcoin onto your balance sheet. And everyone's going to want to do that because the value is increasing, right? As you're holding Bitcoin, the buying power is going up for that security or for that Bitcoin that you're holding on your balance sheet. So if you don't have free cash flows, you can't do any of these activities. You can't stack this stuff on your balance sheet. And so it's the ultimate broad stored to the neck of all these zombie companies that exist right now mm-hmm. that are just trying to front run. I don't know. The front run's not the right word. They're trying to just get dibs to all the money that's being inserted into the system, all the fiat that's getting inserted into the system so that they can just do some ridiculously risky move to outpace the competition. Because this incentive structure that we're, that we're describing in the first scenario of the Monopoly game is this ultimate rat race. You don't want to have any of this depreciating money on your balance sheet. You got to get it out the door. You got to get levered as much as possible so that you have the opportunity to try to compete by gobbling up as many assets as possible. And when you step into a sound money scenario, you start doing the exact opposite of that where free cash flows are super important. You want to stack this stuff on your balance sheet. And if you're not producing free cash flows, you get killed. Yeah, I think what you're describing there is sort of debt-based growth versus savings-based growth. Exactly. Uh, so, so, you know, a, a lot of companies right now, they're zombies because they, they can get really cheap debt and they can afford to sort of survive and push off the day of reckoning for another day until, you know, I guess their credit runs out. Whereas in the other scenario that you described, it's one where you actually have to save. So free cash flows become super important. Because you actually have to get debt from the market if you want debt at all, and you need collateral in order to do that, or you can save up for it and grow sort of more naturally. And you know, it, this brings up a question for me, which, which you kind of hinted at, which is the amount of capital investment that goes in. A lot of that investment right now is completely artificial because it comes out of money printing, which is essentially debt issued out of nothing. So you hinted that that's going to kind of slow down. How do you think that actually affects the investment? In- community like would there be fewer things to you know be able to invest in or would there be more things or would people sort of start their own businesses what would be the practical effect of that i'm not really sure i think that mm. that what's going to play out is going to be extremely difficult to kind of predict or project i would i would equate it to everyone the whole global economy especially the debt is getting sucked into a black hole and it's going to get spit out the other side in an aggressive and just kind of somewhat unfathomable kind of way for us to even fully understand. When I think about this transition of going through this black hole and getting spit out the other side, the thing that's, I think, really easy to kind of project is the, the existing debt, the fiat debt. All of those, con- I, look at, I look at them as contracts, right? Like there's a contract for me to... If you took out a loan on your house and you're going to pay that back, the contract states that I have to pay it back in fiat terms, right? It doesn't say that the bank has the ability to change the, the terms of how they're being, wh- which currency they're being repaid in. So 
if you take out that loan on the house and you're paying that back in fiat terms, the bank is just getting wrecked on that on that contract. Because as time marches on and the value of Bitcoin continues to go up relative to fiat, you're just paying it back with worthless money. It's just worthless paper. So now when you think about that on a global scale and how much debt exists, I mean, we're talking a hundred trillion plus market, debt market, right? And all of those contracts are denominated and they state that it's going to be repaid in fiat. I mean, it's just going to be kind of a devastating event. So who makes out on that deal? Well, all the people that are, that are borrowers that, and I think this is the really key point, all the people that are borrowers that still have a job that allows them to collect payment in whatever currency wins. Okay. So you and I are of the opinion that Bitcoin's going to win, right? It's, for us, it's just a really obvious outcome. If you don't buy into that or you're somebody who thinks that there's going to be some SDR or all this other stuff, I mean, I just kind of roll my eyes at such a, such a scenario, but let's just say that, that that's the scenario you buy into. That's going to be the payment that everyone settles in. And if you're performing labor in the market, that's what you're going to demand is whatever this new currency is that we move into. And so when you, if you're able to sustain a job and add productive labor into the marketplace, you're going to demand, in my opinion, you're, you're going to demand payment in Bitcoin. And so your ability to repay the loan is getting easier by the day, right? Mm. So for all those people that are highly levered, which is 90, I don't know what the number is, but I would imagine 90% plus of all Americans are levered up to their eyeballs on their house, their cars, the whatevers. And when we think about especially long duration loans, 30-year loans that stipulate repayment in fiat terms, as people start getting paid in, in the new currency, Bitcoin, it's going to get easier and easier and easier for them to make payments on those loans. So that's an exciting thing for all these people throughout, just not in America, but all throughout the world that are levered up to their eyeballs because they've been incentivized to become levered up to their eyeballs based on inflationary monetary policy. Right. So I've heard about this in like hyperinflating countries where a lot of people kind of like it because their loans are now denominated and it's like, yep. you know, very small and they get these assets more or less. Anything that whatever you have in your possession, even if anything that you owe money on, most of that is more or less going to get canceled. But at the same time, what they find is that they can't get any new loans and that ends up becoming a big detriment because they're kind of used to being able to get loans. And the general tendency is for the credit market to dry up as, you know, the like, basically, the banks can make way more money, you know, converting their currency to whatever the new currency is and just sitting on it rather than loaning it out to people, which has its own risk profile and so on. So how do you think that plays out? Like, we're talking about hyper Bitcoinization, basically, like, yeah, there is this incentive to go and borrow as much as you can, just go buy Bitcoin and then pay back the loan at 3%, 5%, even 10, 12%. Like what happens there? Like, do you think the credit market shrinks and like the USM2 starts shrinking or what happens? Well, I guess I would look at it from this frame of reference. If, if mm -hmm. I was one of these people that had a highly levered loan on a house, the last thing you're going to want to do is sell the house simply because you know that you're that it's getting easier and easier for you to pay it. If you would sell the house, you're now going to have to step into a new contract that is denominating most likely in some other currency, some other terms that are less favorable to you. So I think, of course, you're going to have people that are still going to sell their house because 
for whatever reasons, right? They have to move because of a job, what you name it, right? But I think the urge is going to be for for a lot of people to not get out of that contract because it's such a sweetheart deal. It's low, it's low rate, a low yield fiat loan of two percent or three percent or whatever it is these days, right? People are not going to want to get out of that contract. When I think about the equity market, so forget what the stat is. It was it was something crazy. It was like 10% of the population owns 80% of the stock market. It's something mm-hmm. close to that, right? Mm-hmm. So think about that 10% and how much of the stock market they own. And think about how ridiculously high the capitalization rate is for equities right now. It's sky high, right? Mm-hmm. So as you go into a scenario, the hyper-Bitcoinization scenario, these people who have all this net worth, but it's all denominated in fiat, all these people have this net worth and it's through all the equity that they own in the marketplace, right? Today, it's being priced in fiat terms. As this transition happens, people are going to start looking at things in Bitcoin terms, right? This is really fascinating. When you go and you look at Apple, right? And you look at the top line of Apple, every single person that you would you'd say, hey, let's look at the trend line of, of the top line of Apple over the last 10 years. Is it going up or going down? Every single person is going to tell you that it's going up, right? I would tell you it's going down. And it's going down because if I go back and I re-denominate year 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016, at the price of Bitcoin at that point in time, and then you plot it in Bitcoin terms, the top line of Apple, guess what? It's going down, right? <laughs> so, and it is. And this is for every single company on the planet right now. So as we start getting into this transition point where everyone's starting to actually use the ruler that works, they're going to start looking at the top lines of these businesses. And as businesses are hesitant to start adopting Bitcoin in a Michael Saylor kind of way, they're going to start saying, hey, that company is only allocating 5% of their free cash flows to their balance sheet. And when I do an, an analysis on the trend line of how the company's growing, it's still going down because they're not they're not putting enough Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Now, this company over here, this Michael Saylor type company, it's going up in value. And now I can start doing an assessment on whether I should own that company or I should just own Bitcoin itself. And there's going to get to a point when all these companies start dealing in Bitcoin terms that the equity actually starts to become more valuable than just holding the underlying Bitcoin itself. Okay. And that's going to be a big transition point. I have no idea what time frame we're talking. But I w- I'll throw this one out there. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw that within five years from now, at the earliest, right? I think that would probably be the earliest where you would start to, as a person with a lot of Bitcoin like yourself, Jimmy, right? You would start well, saying- I am not going to confirm or deny that. <laughs> sure. well, I, I heard you lost all yours a year ago in a boating accident. In a right? boating accident. Yes. Yeah, sure. Sure. Yes. Yeah. That sounds about right. So- People who have a lot of Bitcoin are going to be looking at equities in terms that they're saying, hey, you know what? This is priced to perform and it's going to actually give me more return because of the free cash flows that they're kicking off. It seems like this has an, you know, a really good mode around it from a competitive advantage standpoint, right? And it's priced in Bitcoin terms at a valuation that's going to give me a 10% kicker over the currency itself. And what you're going to find is all these Bitcoiners, all these people that hold a lot of of Bitcoin on their personal balance sheets are going to start to step into the market. They're going to start to buy equities again. And 
that's how so much of this equity is going to get redistributed. And that's how much so, that's how so much of the Bitcoin is going to get redistributed. A lot of people talk about how the Bitcoin's only in the hands of a few. Well, if, if we start this trade of swapping equity from this, let's just call it all the boomers own the equity today, right? Mm-hmm. They're going to be willing to sell it at certain price points that make more sense to Bitcoiners that are willing to actually step in and start buying that instead of just hodling Bitcoin. That transition is going to be a really kind of unique time. It's really, it's really hard to try to wrap our heads around it because the the timing and just, I mean, all of it is is really hard to foresee because we're talking about things that I just don't suspect are going to happen probably any sooner than than probably five years from now. So very interesting thought there because essentially what you're saying is these companies are going to have to beat the performance of Bitcoin, and in order to do that. You more or less have to be denominating everything in Bitcoin in order to beat Bitcoin, because if you're denominating everything in dollars, there's no way that you're going to beat it. Your gross margins would have to be like some insane percentage. So that leads me to this thought. In order for these companies then to be able to beat Bitcoin, they have to essentially be a lot more efficient, number one. And number two, they're going to have to collect payment in Bitcoin in order to, you know, not suffer from that slippage of, you know, mm-hmm. like waiting until it's in their treasury and then converting that over to Bitcoin. I would tell you that what you're saying is true, but I think it's more like, all right. So in my opinion, we're going to see the Germany, the 1920s Germany mark chart is what we're going to see, but it's going to be in Bitcoin, right? On a global scale. That's my base opinion on, on what's going to play out here. When you look at when that chart just totally turned into a rocket and you were going from a million to 10 million to 100 million, mm. was that all played out in a year, right? Mm-hmm. So whether that happens on this cycle or the next cycle, I have no idea. But when it does play out, what you're describing where they're going to have businesses are going to have to do all their transactions in Bitcoin in real time, that's when that's going to have to take place for businesses to basically stay alive. They are going to have to be dealing in, you know, with a strike wallet. <laughs> They're going to be having to be dealing with this stuff in real time. In the meantime, as the price, and <laughs> I know this sounds crazy to say, we're looking at the price right now and we're, we're thinking that that's what's playing out. And I, I don't think that we have any idea what that actually looks like right now. I think a company that's just sweeping their free cash flows at the end of the month at the after 30 days hey this is what our company makes 10 million dollars every month and so we're going to sweep that into bitcoin at the end of the month i think that is absolutely going to suffice that company's going to do extraordinarily well just look at the market price of uh, microstrategy because you're seeing that reflected in their market price but when i do a valuation on microstrategy in bitcoin terms the market is still pricing it so incredibly high because it's being compared to the rest of the market in these 30x PE ratios, which are totally nuts. If you're looking at it, something that has a PE ratio of a 30, you're looking at something that's like a 2 or 3% return. So if we go back to the money machine example, right? You're buying a money machine that prints $3 a year for 100 bucks or $2 a year for 100 bucks. That's a really crappy price. Right, that's not especially when you look at the risk that's associated with some of these companies in, in remaining solvent as a competitor in an uber competitive environment. Those prices are nuts, right? So until those prices come down to like a PE of ten, 
right? And they're stacking Bitcoin and sweeping it at the end of every 30 days. Then all of a sudden, those those look like investments where I might be willing to give up some of my Bitcoin to own the equity, right? But we're nowhere near that right now with anything, even with MicroStrategy, you're nowhere near that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to be a significant asset inflation. Why do you think that is? Is it because there's nowhere else to put it? Yeah, well, I think it's being treated like sound money. I think equity is being treated like sound money. So when you think about it, equity doesn't have the problem that debt has in this whole scenario that we're talking about. The debt's denominated in fiat, right? So you're going to get fiat back in a fixed rate term and the terms are 2% or something absolutely obscene, right? That is going to completely blow up. It's going to be completely impaired. When you talk about equities, they can deal in any currency they want in the future if they choose to. MicroStrategy is a perfect example, right? So if you own that equity, the equity doesn't say this company has to deal in fiat. And so that's why equity is just so much different. The stocks are so much different than how you look in the bond market. The bond market's going to be a travesty. Hmm. Well, what do you see for the bond market? Because that to me is sort of like the weirdest part of the equation because that's sort of like, you know, that's essentially debt that's floating around and it gets issued pretty much all the time. And the rates are significantly low, which at least tells me that the money is expanding like crazy. So like, talk to me about that. Why is the bond market the way it is? And actually, maybe start with for our audience, how bonds work and and go through sort of what the consequences of Bitcoinization will do to that market. I like that because whenever I first started studying Warren Buffett and trying to understand how to value a business, I don't remember where I read it, but effectively the the guidance was you need to understand how to value a bond before you try to understand how to value equity. Because until you can just do something really basic like a bond in the valuation process, you'll never be able to value equity. So this is really simple. So let's just say that we have a $1,000 bond. In the older days, what you'd have is you'd get a book, you'd get a coupon book, and you would, you would supply the $1,000 to the business or to the government or whoever was issuing the bond, right? And let's just say that it was a 10-year bond. And so you'd get a coupon book, and in that would be 20 coupons. Because typically bonds are paid, the coupon on it is paid twice a year. And so you would rip off one of these coupons and on it, let's just say that the yield on the bond is 5%, right? The face value of it is $1,000 and the coupon is a 5% coupon. So what you would do is you would rip off your coupon. It would be for 2.5% because it's paid twice a year. You'd mail that 2.5% coupon into the, to the issuer of the debt. And then they would send you back your check. And in this, you know, let's just say it's two and a half percent. So in this scenario, you'd get your $25 in the mail. And then six months later, you'd mail in your next coupon, you'd get your next $25 and you'd keep mailing in these coupons. And at the end, the very last thing that you would mail in, which would be the face value of $1,000 back to the issuer. And then the issuer would give you your $1,000 back. That is everything you need to know about a bond. Now, where the bond market gets a little bit trickier for people is when you think about, let's just say that we went through five years of coupons, right? There's another five years of coupons left on the bond. And we bought, it's a 5% yielding thing, but now interest rates around you have changed. And let's say the interest rates have gone down to two and a half percent. Okay. So if interest rates at year five in this 10 year bond have gone to two and a half percent, what happens is, is 
you're here. You are, you know, you're the fat cat holding this, this bond coupon book with 5% coupons on it. Right. Well, if you go into the open market at that point in time, the best you can get is two and a half percent. So you better darn well believe people are willing to pay a premium for those coupons that remain at 5%. So the face value of a thousand, when you try to sell that coupon book into the open market, because let's just say you found a better deal that you want to use the money for, the premium on that goes way up because everything else in the market's at two and a half percent. So when we talk on our show and we get into all this macro you know, talk, I can see how people get confused because if you don't understand how interest rates going down drive up the value of previously issued bonds and debt that had a higher that had a higher yield that won't those conversations won't make sense to you right but now when you hear how simple all this is it makes a whole lot of sense that you can see that that coupon book that you're holding at 5% becomes really valuable at that point now imagine if it wasn't a 10 year bond and it was a 30 year bond now it got really valuable right because there wasn't five years left in that coupon book. There was 25 years left in that coupon book. And so now the premium just gets ratcheted up way higher, right? So when we look at what's happened in the market since 1981, the 10-year treasury back in 1981 was like 16.1 or 2%, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's at a 1%. So when you think about how interest rates have progressively, which was completely manipulated by central banks, Mm-hmm. was completely manufactured and engineered since 1981 to keep going down. You can see how a person on Wall Street, I always use the example that a ham sandwich on Wall Street could have been the, you know, an outstanding fixed income investor for the last 30 years because interest rates always just went down and so the value of all the fixed income just keeps going up, especially if you're dealing with long duration 30-year bonds. And so when you think about where we're going and now what does this mean with Bitcoin, right? So now that we understand how fixed income is priced and how interest rates just drastically change the value in the aftermarket for for debt, you can see how central banks cannot allow interest rates to go up because if they go up, that whole dynamic of premiums getting built into previously issued debt, it goes in reverse. Instead of it getting bid, it gets sold and the prices are going down on the previously issued debt and it's getting harder to to make payments on newly issued debt so that's why they're in this situation where every central bank in the world all the interest rates have been dr- driven down to 0% and nobody and i mean nobody can allow interest rates to go up because if they go up it's just total impairment on all these big banks all these big businesses that fixed income think about just like insurance companies alone their balance sheet sitting on all this fixed income, long duration bonds that yield like 2%, right? If interest rates start going up, all of that, the principle of all that gets totally impaired. It's like a, it's a train wreck of epic proportions. And so, so you, you would be essentially wrecking all of the people that are holding these bonds. And that would be the big problem if the interest rate didn't keep going down. And so when people are looking at interest rates, and they're saying, and when you think about interest rates, it's a premium above whatever you think the inflation is. So if you think inflation's one percent, and you buy into the CPI and all the lies that are being told around that, right? Hmm. You're valuing your fixed income, saying, well, if 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 inflation's one percent, I have to probably get two percent, and and my my gain is a one percent, and not in in real terms is only one percent, right? Hmm. 
And so the lie of CPI is wrapped all into this because if we start saying C, the, the real inflation rate is M2, which is 15%, <laughs> and everyone in the world is valuing the entire fixed income market at 2% or 3% for 30-year duration bonds, it's kind of like this aha moment where you're saying, oh my God, the emperor is wearing no clothes, mm. right? I mean, of $100 trillion of epic proportion. And so it's unfathomable. And so when people, when I look at Bitcoin and I look at it really kind of being the measuring stick for the real inflation and the real printing in the world, and people will push back on that because it's not a mature asset. It's growing into a mature asset. So you have a little bit of both of those things playing out in the price. And so you'll you'll hear a lot of people push back that Bitcoin can't necessarily be the inflation gauge simply because it's maturing into a fully capitalized currency, right? And that's I think that's a valid argument. But let's just say that Bitcoin was at $50 trillion and all the debasement that's occurring, you would start to see these real numbers, these real inflation numbers being reflected in the buying power of Bitcoin at that point. You know, between you and me, I think the number's way higher than 50 trillion. Michael Saylor, I know, throws out 200 trillion. And I'm not going to be one to argue with that guy. Wow. Yeah. And uh, just so you know, the current market cap is right around 700 billion. So that's uh, <laughs> that's like 300x from here. So that's kind of an insane number to think about. But this is this is a lot of that that money that is currently sitting in a lot of these equities and bonds essentially flowing into Bitcoin because it's a better store of value instead of these other things, which, you know, we're, like you said, like they're supposed to be money printing machines, like a bond, I guess, is a lease on a money printing machine and an equity is like you get to buy it or something like that. But that's what they are. And the fact that, you know, these things are priced so high means that like those money printing machines are a substitute for sound money, like you said, instead of something that actually is sound money being sound money, it's those things. And they have a fundamental mispricing as a result. So Jimmy, that, Jimmy yeah, one, of the th- one of the things I want to say that just really made my eyebrow go up when I was watching CNBC, this was probably a month ago. The chief investment officer for fixed income at BlackRock was on CNBC talking about Bitcoin and how he was of the opinion that it's quote unquote going to give gold a run for its money and that this is really kind of a placement for gold. And I'm thinking to myself, why is the guy for fixed income, the guy, right? The guy for BlackRock of of all banks, right? (laughs) the guy talking about this. And I'm thinking, why isn't the commodities, they're talking about how it's a replacement to gold and a store of value. Why isn't the commodities guy from BlackRock on here having this discussion right now? Mm. And it was just this moment where I had this big giant smirk on my face like, yo, they want people to think that Bitcoin is just a replacement to gold, right? Like that it's just going to be a $10 trillion kind of thing is their low ball, right? This is anything but a $10 trillion deal here. We're talking about the moment where things just go parabolic is when your typical fixed income investor starts to say, oh my God, CPI is a lie. 
I've been duped into thinking that these yields of 2% are based in reality, mm. right? It's going to be this moment where they're saying, oh my God, the inflation rate is 15 or 20%. And now I've got to stick a premium on top of that to just make any sort of semblance of a return. And when all your fixed income people in the world start to actually step out of the mirage and see what it is that's actually taking place in the marketplace, it's going to be mind-boggling. When you think about government debt versus corporate debt, I think there's a really big delineation there because I think when you talk about government debt around the world, which is a huge chunk of the overall fixed income numbers that we're throwing around, governments are just going to step in and buy that, right? They're not going to allow it to uh, how do I say this? On the corporate side, it's going to blow up, right? On the sovereign side, governments are just going to print and, and suck it all out of the market and replace it with more fiat that'll then just get probably pushed straight into Bitcoin. I don't know. Aren't they like basically giving out loans against corporate bonds now and munis as well? Like that, at least I, I remember reading that from the Fed that that was like one of their lending facilities is any bond above a certain rating, you can just get a loan against it. So like, it seems like they're preventing the selling of corporate bonds so that all these bondholders just keep it, but they can get access to capital if they need to cash out. You know, That seems to be their strategy. That's exactly right. That's exactly what they've been doing. I'm concerned that as they continue to do this moving forward, it's going to have so much moral hazard for companies to just go out and borrow at just obscene levels, convert it into Bitcoin, and then it's bad debt. And then the government swoops in and buys it because it's triple C, right? That's where I don't know how long that charade will last, but I do know the the government issued debt, they're just going to swoop in and buy it. They're just going to continue to do it. And they might do it for the corporate side. I think your point's very valid, Jimmy. I'm with you 100%. I just don't know how long they'll run the charade. (laughs) That's really the question for us today, right? Like is... How long can they run this charade? Because it really is kind of like a house of cards. Like you were saying, they need to keep lowering the rates. Otherwise, all of those people that are holding these bonds are going to get absolutely wrecked, many of which are banks and insurance companies and all the too big to fail things. So how does this play out? And how long can they keep it going? Like, Do rates start going negative? Of course, that causes all sorts of weirdness because now people are incentivized to just like hold cash in their basement and things like that. So, I mean, what happens there? Well, let me talk the micro strategy debt, convertible debt deal, because I think this is a really good example of that thing was oversubscribed. I think it was oversubscribed by $150 million. And so when you have that much oversubscription, you have to ask yourself, was the yield on the coupon that was being issued there too high? Was 75 basis points too high of a coupon? I guess if I was Michael, I'd be looking at it and saying, hey, maybe I should have gone into the market and offered 0%. (laughs) Maybe I should have offered a negative 25 basis point yield on this because everybody that was there buying it was there buying it because of the convertibility portion of the note Mm -hmm. because they knew it was going into Bitcoin, right? So you had a bunch of Bitcoiner, you had a bunch of fixed income Bitcoiners that are saying, my God, finally, I can get some access to Bitcoin through the convertibility clause of this, right? And there was so much interest, they were banging down the doors to $150 million of oversubscription of what he was going after. 
So in a scenario where you have a company that's very solvent, doesn't have any type of debt concerns, their current ratio is strong, all the financial health of his company is A+, plus, right? So a person like that that's issuing debt, they might be able to step into the market at negative yields and have fixed income investors on the corporate fixed income side that are more than happy to step into that as long as there's some type of convertibility into the equity. If there's no convertibility into the equity, I don't know how that plays out and whether the, the rates could go negative. But I think if, if you're offering convertibility, boy, yeah, I think the rates could go negative. The other, the other side or the, the other way that I would have worked that angle potentially, knowing what we know now, right? Hindsight's 2020, is you just change the strike. Like if you want to keep the 75 basis points, you just change the strike to instead of it being, I think it was like 480 or 90 dollars is when is when the strike becomes valuable. Maybe you change the strike to seven hundred or eight hundred dollars or something ludicrous from where the original stock price was, and maybe you bring your your debt subscription into normalcy at that point. Wow, that would be interesting. So that brings up a question: How many more public companies do you think will do something like what Michael did? Because obviously, there's a huge demand in the market, and there are companies that are kind of boring, like you said. They aren't, you know, Fang or you know, exciting stocks that are in the market. They have cash flow. They have a very good credit rating, but they're not considered exciting because they run a boring business. Maybe they run a thing of parking lots or something. Like, you, how does that? I don't think. Are you're they? Gonna when see, are they going to get in? I don't think you're going to see copycats, especially mm. on like this debt deal. You're not going to see copycats on this until you're in a phase where it's becoming really clear that Bitcoin is going to become, it's becoming hyper Bitcoinization at that point. Once the market starts sniffing out that that's where this is all going, you're going to see everyone and their kid sister try to do that debt deal. Mm. But I think from now until then, the reason you don't see this, especially in public markets, is because it's very rare that you have a company that's capitalized over a billion dollars where a founder or somebody who's an all-star, you know, manager can have the sense to go do what Michael did, to understand all those pieces and parts in order to pull off a deal like he did. They don't have the voting rights to do it. And so you might have somebody really smart like that, but they only have 5% of the voting rights and they just can't sway the board and all the other people who just totally cannot understand what's, what's happening here. I mean, do we need a Carl Icahn, you know, an activist shareholder that's like, hey, you know what? We need to do this deal. And I, because if it's oversubscribed by 200 million, and, you know, everyone in that deal is making out great right now, just to make it clear, like those guys are going to make a lot of, the bondholders are going to make a lot of money because it'll likely convert to a couple shares of micro strategies or whatever. You know, Michael's doing well. He pumped the price of Bitcoin with whatever he bought. And, you know, the shareholders are happy. Everyone's happy. Well, this is what I think you're going to see in the more short-term play out. Like over literally the fourth quarter filings from 2020 into the next two quarters, it's going to become, you're going to see a lot of companies start putting it on their balance sheet. I think that that's really kind of going to be the more conservative play is, hey, we're kicking off some cash flows. We took a 5% position on what we would normally have as marketable securities on on our balance sheet. We took 5% of that and it's now in Bitcoin. I think that you're going to start to see, you know, I really think that you're going to see some big tech companies that make that announcement with their fourth quarter closeout. Hmm. 
you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it was Apple or Amazon or, you know, Netflix or whatever. It's going to be one of those, those big ones, Google. One of them, I kind of suspect we're going to see their fourth quarter closeout is that they were buying Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And then I think really? once... Yeah. Not like a smaller company that's maybe not getting that much attention because it seems like a very good way to you oh, know, no. get on the market's good side. No, 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 no. I think that you're going to see a lot of small companies that, that announce it in, just mm-hmm. within the fourth quarter here. Mm-hmm. But I also think that you might actually see even a tech titan company mm-hmm. make the announcement here just from the fourth quarter. If you don't see it in the fourth quarter, then I think definitely by the end of the first quarter. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. so a lot of these smaller companies you think will have a Bitcoin position, in which no case, doubt. you know, if you hold the share of that stock, then you have some of the upside. And I think on the private company side, which makes up an enormous amount of equity, I think you've been actually seeing that for a lot longer. I mean, I just know personally on my company, first quarter of 2020, I became a Bitcoin balance sheet company. Mm. I mean, it's just a fact. Everything that I had as retained earnings in some type of liquid form, you know, that would normally be in marketable securities, it became all Bitcoin. Hmm. And I think that there's a lot of other people out there. And I think in the private market, you have a lot more concentration of voting rights for the equity that's owned. And so I think you see these bigger, bolder moves by people that actually can, they're looking around and they're saying, hey, something's up. Like the way I used to be able to conduct business and the margins I used to make and how I used to be able to retain earnings is just, there's something wrong, right? So they're looking for what is happening. And I think they're all seeing that it's the currency. And so they're looking for these alternate forms of investment. And they're, a lot of them are arriving at Bitcoin. And then they can make the bold move because they own so much of the voting rights. Hmm. Well, I mean, how hard is it for a private company to issue bonds? <laughs> I have no idea, but... Yeah. I mean, you can step in. It depends on your market size. I mean, if you're a $100 million kind of company, you're going to work that deal with some type of company. If you want to raise $10 million, uh, you're working with lawyers and banks to cure that. And then you're reaching out to... you know, I don't know if venture debt would be the market that would be willing to buy that kind of stuff up. I know I did a private... I invested in a private debt deal probably two years ago. And... I knew the founder and he reached out, right? And it was convertible. And so I did the deal with them. But yeah, this kind of happened more through a much more smaller network of opportunities and, and offers. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it is possible then that they can maybe, well, I, it doesn't sound like you can really reach the fixed income investors that are kind of hungry for this sort of asset. But there's definitely seems like a gap that looks exploitable and it seems like somebody will exploit it. Totally Even agree. if it is an activist shareholder, that's just like, you know, we're going to take over the board and this is what we're going to do because there's a huge gap in the market. Most companies don't have the debt to equity. Like Michael's debt to equity was, was effectively zero or 0.1, right? So mm. for him to step in and do this deal, he could have said he was going out and buying bonbons and he probably would have had some people interested. <laughs> so he was he's in a really sound financial position and not all businesses are like that right now not all businesses are i mean you look across the market and this is a number that i think kind of makes everyone's eyeballs pop out of their head but half of the equity in the open market today does, doesn't even make a profit let alone <laughs> and i'm serious let alone a debt to equity of 0 or 0.1 mm. 
Wow. I mean, what percentage would you say have sort of the balance sheet that? I wouldn't know that. I'd have to dig into that, but I would suspect the number is less than 20%. I would imagine like if I, I like, I'm not an activist shareholder, obviously, but if I knew that game and I knew that there was, you know, this very juicy thing that you could do with Bitcoin. And if I really believed in it, this wouldn't be a bad play to get a lot more money and a lot of leverage onto Bitcoin without necessarily that much risk because you're taking this company's resources into doing that instead of your personal holdings. Well, especially um, so- if you're a, if you're a hedge fund and you're a fixed income hedge fund and you got a billion dollars you got to get out the door and you've got you know let's just say you want to take 10 or 20% of that billion into a much more riskier environment where you can capture a ton of potential yield through some type of convertible debt deal. Those are the guys that are looking for this Michael Saylor deal, right? Because mm-hmm. if they're wrong, no big deal. They're probably going to get their yield back at at a market rate that everyone else is paying. So it's not going to damage them, especially when you got such a healthy company like Michael's. It's a total asymmetrical trade, right? So anybody who's a hedge fund fixed income person is looking at this saying, oh yeah, where's where's the next one of these, right? Where the heck is the next one of these? <laughs> Yeah, that makes total sense. And it feels like there's a lot of arbitrage that can be done by sort of bigger entities that's uh, just sort of ripe for the picking. And, you know, it it just kind of seems crazy to me that really not too many players have stepped in to fill those gaps because there is a demand for this sort of asset at all different levels, I imagine. So, you know, usually when we think of investing, we think of it only from sort of like a personal investing standpoint. But you know, there's a lot more money in pension funds and the pools of capital for just the hedge fund industry alone is just it'd make your head spin. You just can't imagine how much capital is is in those pools. Give me an idea, just order of magnitude. You know, I wouldn't be able to really kind of give you the one on the private hedge fund side. If I had to guess, I would guess and I'm sure I'm gonna hear in Twitter because there's people <laughs> out there that know these numbers. I would guess five to fifteen trillion. Wow, wow. is what and I would the guess. Private and, hedge funds. Yeah, in the private hedge fund space, that either is going after equity or debt. Hmm. Wow. And then on the and, and of course you got like pools of capital with you know, I guess bond investors and public pensions and all that other stuff that's even bigger. So. I guess there's a lot of capital that's looking for a home right now. Oh, yeah. Looking for yield, looking for anything with yield. And so you can see why when you turn on CNBC, the Bitcoin narrative is just so popular to talk about right now, because what else are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about the stock market that's capitalized at a 2% return right now? (laughs) You're going to talk about the fixed income market that's even more pathetic than that? I mean, there's no yield anywhere. and so. When we see, and that's why Tesla, and that's why Bitcoin, and things that are just going parabolic are just like, what? What is up with these these ten companies that just defy gravity relative to everything in the market? <laughs> and yeah, Bitcoin seems to be one of those things that's you know going against everything else. Wow, so crazy stuff. So. Where do you see Bitcoin going over the next five years? And how do you think investing changes with regard to Bitcoin? Uh, like, are more people going to put money into Bitcoin? Are more companies? Are more 
fixed income investors or more hedge funds? What's going to be the trend over the next five years? The hard thing for me to kind of wrap my head around, I think most people in the marketplace are buying into the stock to flow model. I think a lot of people in traditional finance are starting to say, hey, I, I need to understand Bitcoin. What's driving this price? And I think when they start really actually digging in, they're seeing that it's a mathematical model that's making it more and more scarce every four years. And it's doing it in a manner in which the issuance rate cannot be sped up based on the two-week difficulty adjustment. Hmm. And that's what makes it so much different than gold or anything else. Because gold, if the price starts surging, it has this equilibrium that naturally takes place and everyone wants to go out and mine the gold so they can capture the spread. And with Bitcoin, that's just not how it works. No matter how many people come online and try to mine it to capture that spread, the competition just gets harder and harder, but the, the number of coins that keep popping out don't speed up. Mm-hmm. And so the more Wall Street digs into that, the more they're realizing that this is something very special. And this is something that I think a lot of them are starting to say, I don't know how anything can possibly beat this. And so my concern and the thing that I have trouble kind of wrapping my head around is let's just fast forward to the end of 2021 when you and I and everybody else is looking at this stock to flow model. It's saying, let's just say it's a quarter of a million dollars, right? The price goes to a quarter of a million dollars. Is everyone just going to lose their calculator and say, oh, well, Yep, it's just going to go through another cycle and it's going to go down 80%. And then in 2025, get ready again because then it's going to go to a million based on the model, right? I have a really hard time buying that. I think that anybody who can do a present value calculation of what they think the future is going to be and discounting it back into today's value, they're going to look at that and say, okay, 2025, it's going to be a million. So the fact that it's at a quarter of a million right now, means I have a 400% upside from this point here to three years from now, Mm. right? 400% upside. And when you look at the backdrop of all your other investment opportunities and what they're yielding, one or 2%, I'll do that math and I'm not going to sell the position and risk that. In fact, I'm just going to keep on buying, right? Because I'll take a 400% return in a three-year period of time. I think everybody else will too, Hmm. right? So my concern is I don't think people are going to lose their calculators. I think people are going to say, hey, I'll take that deal right now. I'm a little concerned that I have another thesis that I there's no way to prove whether it's valid or not, but I kind of suspect that the further and further we kind of keep pushing out into these stock to flow, I call them orbits the more difficult it is for them to stay in the orbit. Like it becomes almost unstable at that point. And the separation velocity of, you know, I think of it almost like a satellite orbiting Earth. And as you push it further and further out into orbit, it gets easier and easier for it to come out of whatever that orbit you're you're putting it into. Like your tangential velocity has to be so perfectly placed that if it's even off by a couple the speed at which you're placing it is off by just a little bit. It's either going to get sucked back into the orbit and burn up, or it's going to go just take off into outer space. Hmm. With Bitcoin, I think that there's actually a limitation on it being able to get sucked back in. So there's like a hard line limit that it can't come back into the center of mass. It can only get blown out into space Hmm. the further and further it goes out into orbit. So I think it gets more and more fragile 
for it to stay in these stock to flow orbits. And I think that in this one that we're about to experience, I kind of suspect that it might just keep on going, mm. that it could just, we could start seeing hyper Bitcoinization start playing out. And well, that would be, that would really be to the moon because once we yeah. get released from <laughs> Earth's orbit, that would. Everyone starts valuing everything and they start looking at things in Bitcoin terms. They're going back and they're saying, hey, Apple's top line is going down in Bitcoin terms, right? The only way that can change is if they start becoming, they start doing business in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that those, I think all of those types of considerations are way closer than people realize. Mm. And I think they're way closer than people realize simply because the backdrop, the macro backdrop is so depressed and so abysmal and so getting so manipulated that it's forcing people to understand Bitcoin. It's forcing them to step in and say, what is this thing? Mm. So you're saying that the current macro environment is that bad that yes. uh, people are forced into it. Wow. Yes. I think that because most of it comes down to the debt market, the debt market is such a disaster. Hmm. I mean, when you think about it, Michael paying 75 basis points <laughs> and he's a corporation. I mean, it's, it's just insane. It's an, and to think that he could have probably gotten lower hmm. than 75 basis points. Or that raise is, more money, yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, it's it's totally ludicrous to think, especially when you have the opinion that CPI is 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 a total joke. Mm. So I think it's a, a way sicker puppy than people realize. Mm. And if it really is a sick puppy, and just given sort of the political environment, how do you think that plays out? Well, like, so we get a social unrest. What do we get? Yeah, I think that that we're already seeing that playing out. People will stick whatever political narrative they want on the social unrest, whether it's people storming the Capitol building or it's Black Lives Matter or whatever. My opinion, and this is just my two cents, is the social unrest you're seeing on both sides is being driven by people who know that there's something fundamentally wrong with them going to work day after day in their what they're trying to outpace is something that's getting debased at 15 to 20% on an annualized basis. And they don't know what it is, but they just know it's not fair, that it's just, it doesn't make any sense. I feel like I work my tail off and I'm on debt up to my eyeballs and I have no money to go do anything. They're angry, right? They're angry that the circumstances feel and are insanely unfair. And so when you think about the political dynamic that's been allowed to play out since the 2008 crisis, central banks have stepped in and they've used the QE tool as if it was the sludge o I don't know if you remember the comedian, uh, was it Gallagher was his name? Gallagher, yeah. Everything he would just go out and he would hit with this sludge And so when you think of how central banks have handled this crisis that we've been in since 2008. QE has been the sledgematic. They've tried to hit every single thing on the planet with the sledgematic being QE. There was another tool this whole time, which is UBI. And UBI is the same thing where you're just printing money and, and inserting it into the economy, but you're doing it in a manner that offsets QE. So going back to our 
our monopoly example, you know, when I talked about how the money was getting inserted, they were going to you because you had the assets and they were giving you cash and swapping it for it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, if imagine now that the banker wasn't only inserting with the sledgematic via QE through what we were describing, but they were the banker was saying, "All right, every player here, here's a hundred bucks. I'm going to give every one of you guys a hundred bucks. Continue playing, right? It's a completely different outcome. And well, it's not a completely different outcome in the long run, but it's a completely different outcome in the incentive structure that's built around how expectations and how we're going to continue to play the game, right? So if if now you're doing the insertion via QE, the way we described, and we're doing it by allowing or, or giving money to all the players. What's happening is, is the game's functioning a little bit better, but in the long run, it's still going to be a situation where the debasement's going to just destroy everybody in the game and one person's going to come out the winner and it's going to be a monopoly, right? Hmm. So I would tell you what's happened over the last 10 years is they've just pulled the QE trigger so many times and just just gutted the middle class and lower class, not just in the US, but globally. And that's why you're already seeing social unrest, not just in the US, literally all over the globe simultaneously. And I think that moving forward, I think you're going to see policymakers try to start using UBI more. The problem they're going to run into with that at this point is if they start doing the UBI tool and start turning that into their sledgematic then you're going to start to see CPI come up, right? You're going to start to see CPI go to 3 or 4%. And then what does that do to the fixed income market? It starts, everyone starts selling out of their, their bonds, right? They start selling their bonds because the yields are going up. And so now they have to step in, back into the bond market and do the more QE at levels that, were, that make the previous you know, buying look ridiculous. Yeah, so, so they have to go in. If CPI rises, they have to go in and buy the bonds that no one else is going to buy that's or at right. least lend against it, injecting more liquidity, as it were, into the market while everybody that would have lost money is basically getting out. So, so, so in short, what I'm trying to say is mm-hmm. we could have made this last a whole lot longer and pushed the social unrest further to the right, maybe 10, maybe an additional 10 to 20 years from what actually, because really kind of, they did this from 2008 till nine. So we're talking like, you know, 13 years, they were able to keep this farce afloat by just using the sludgematic QE. But if they were, if they used it in a more balanced way and they were using QE and UBI simultaneously to insert the, the printing, they probably could have pushed this out another decade or two. <laughs> the, the social unrest. Mm. Mm. Well, essentially what you're saying then is UBI is kind of like bread and circuses and maybe the QE is sort of like bribes to your political allies, something like that. If I was going to go back and try to defend policymakers of why they just continued to use the QE sludgematic, I would tell you that they know that it, when they do UBI, they're going to create a really bad incentive structure. And the incentive structure is this. If we just start giving everybody $2,000, guess what? You are not going to have somebody that wants to go to Chipotle, put on a mask and serve somebody all day long when their buddy is making more money sitting on their hands, getting a UBI check, right? That incentive structure will annihilate an economy. And so you can only use that tool sparingly before 
the people that are doing low salary type work, mm-hmm. they're going to get out of the market immediately and just sit on their hands and take the checks mm-hmm. because they're totally incentivized to do that. So you can only pull that lever so many times before you start really warping the incentive structure in an economy. And I mean, it's, boy, it's super complex. There's a lot of things that, that all shake out from every decision that a policymaker makes. But here we are, and it's all a result of bad decisions that were made. Literally, I'd have to get into a little bit of a history discussion, but I would tell you the really bad decisions were made from the 1940s up until the 1970s of what has actually caused what we're seeing right now in terms of all this debasement that needs to happen in order to keep the economy somewhat normal or a semblance of social unrest from happening. Hmm. Indeed, that does seem to be the case. And it's kind of a scary prospect if you think about it. And in a sense, this was the fall of Rome, right? Like they had to bribe all of their political allies. They also had to bribe the populace. And the only way they could fund that was conquering more territory. The U.S. is kind of taking money from third world countries by exporting its inflation. So in a way, we're kind of already doing that. So you wonder how much longer can this go on? My, yeah, my base case is this is unfortunately going to play out for a lot of people. This is going to play out probably a lot quicker than they realize. Mm. Yeah, which is very scary. But at the same time, if you have some Bitcoin, I think you're okay. Is that yes. your oh, message? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. Uh, although one Bitcoin is right now about $38,000. So, I mean, that's still, I mean, it sounds expensive, but that's probably going to look cheap in a, in a few years. Anyway, where can people find you, Preston? So I'm real active on Twitter, just my first and last name, Preston Pish. And then I have a podcast. The name of the podcast is We Study Billionaires. It was really kind of based around studying Warren Buffett early on. But I'm doing a Wednesday release where I'm just specifically talking about Bitcoin, trying to interview smart people like yourself, Jimmy. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So we're doing that on Wednesdays. It's Bitcoin. And on Saturdays, it's traditional finance and equities and stocks and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Preston can be found at at Preston Pish on Twitter and the We Study Billionaires podcast. Until next time, fiat the lendest.